Welcome. Thank you once again for hanging out with us. This is the one and only IT and the D show broadcasting from our respective homes. This is episode 406, and I am your host, Bob Walton Spiel, hanging out with producer Randy Walker. Guest this week, the man, the myth, the legend, musician, uh, CEO of web development company Loud Baby, producer, storyteller extraordinaire, the absolute legend, Tommy Onyx. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, sir. Uh, you can find us online, itinthed.com. And do us a favor, give us a like on the socials. Subscribe to us everywhere. Find podcasts are sold. Hey, just a quick shout out. I always like job fairs and I like people that are hiring IT people. Um, UWM has a job fair uh, the, the 10th, which is Tuesday in August. Uh, check them out online. I think there's an event bright for you to, um, if Randy, if you have the link, if not, I'll, we'll put it on the Twitters. If not, just Google it. Uh, but yeah, UWM, they're hiring hundreds of people every week. Tons in IT. The IT department's doubled since I've known them a couple of years ago. But yeah, check that out. And it's uh, good stuff. Um, so Tommy, I, I, the first thing that I, when I, when I remembered you were on the show yesterday, tomorrow, I went and checked out, and everyone's been talking about it. the The Woodstock '99 documentary on um, on HBO Max, and I knew they had ties to everything. And yeah. you were like, "I didn't catch it yet." And I remember when it happened because I was like 26, and it was big on MTV. But did you do you know the whole story about like Woodstock '99? No, I have a couple of connections to it, uh, which would be. Um, Kid Rock. Yep. And ICP. So, yeah. I'd love to hear if you ever talk to them, or I'd love to hear their take on this documentary because they spun it in like two to three different ways. It was kind of like the, the the hippies versus the entrepreneurs and like bad, bad, bad. And the entrepreneurs are like, what are you crabbing about? So it was like really, it was really poor looking on the people that, anyway, long story short, there's a, there's a abandoned hangar, mid state. Uh, Air Force Base, mid-state New York. So, like, perfect. It's fenced in, barbed wire. We'll, we'll get everybody in there. Life is good. So everybody piles in on, on the Friday. It's all asphalt. It's 150 degrees. They have maybe 50 porta-potties and bottles of water. I'm talking not a 24-ounce like this. I'm talking, like the like, the little ice mountain, you know, they were charging $4.00. For a bottle of water, they had like six, like free water stations that were that people were bathing in. They had like open air showers, um, and if you look at the mix of the crowd, they were like one hundred eighty dollars tickets. So if you look at ninety nine, crazy money. But the all the porta potties overflowed Friday, the first day by like seven p.m. Um, the entire campground was flooded because somebody decided to puncture the water, uh, ho- the the pipe, because they couldn't get to the the line was so long to get to water. Um, there was people like sleeping under semis because it was so hot on the asphalt, and the east and west stages were a, literally a mile apart. So, um, well, yeah, I mean. I'll- what I can also say is that like that kind of experience, you know, I had a lot of those kind of festival experiences because it around that, you know, all through the, the mid to late nineties, I was touring with inner city and it was all like, you know, we'd go to Europe and play these giant festivals, like ridiculous. And they were just like 
the porta potty vomit poo am- animals that I got to see were like nothing I've ever experienced. And the kind of the degree of sort of depravity was shocking and amazing. Um, they were talking about the, they had the laundry list of the, the, the illnesses that they have, the triage trucks. This guy's like, I worked in Vietnam. Like obviously people weren't getting shot and killed, but like the laundry list of people coming in here was as long. Like there was a guy that died of hypothermia because he hadn't drank water in like seven hours. He needed to, he needed to stay for Metallica. Yeah. So the Saturday night was like limp corn, I'm not sure the right order. Corn, Limp Biscuit, Metallica. So everyone was like, I need to stay for those three. Well, you're talking from 8 p.m. until midnight, 1 a.m., where you're like stuck in the sea of humanity. Like it was like a living, it looked like a living hell to me. It got, I'm going to fast forward, but it got so bad. So imagine like Kid Rock plays Saturday at one o'clock. People are already tired. Right. Now by right. Sunday, people are exhausted. And the still they started raiding the semi trucks like looting and like stealing the food because like people couldn't get access to food sleeping on pizza boxes um and then like just stealing water and handing it out because it got so ridiculous so then they just said burn it down and they're blaming it on the red hot chili peppers because they said let me stand next to your fire after someone made a bonfire have you ever seen you've seen the video right there's like 15 bonfires in this sea of like two hundred thousand people like literally the one guy was like it was literally like lord of the flies like mtv had to bounce because every time like carson daly would come on stage like (laughs) booing like he was adolf hitler like it was insane um how much hatred there was so like people are like we're gonna dip security finally was like put your credentials away put your shirt inside out do not talk to anybody dip get out like it was that much of a they had to bring state troopers in like that's why they've never seen another woodstock since crazy you gotta watch it though yeah, I don't think that. I mean, there hasn't been something right with with that. There hasn't been something like that since, really. Well, Lollapalooza was just in Chicago. They had two hundred, uh, four hundred thousand people there. Yeah, and then that year, that year ninety nine with Woodstock, Coachella was on the West Coast. So no, they, exactly. they were talking about the difference. Like, look at how Coachella ran things. Like it was a well oiled machine, and they're like, you know, Woodstock ninety nine was a perfect example of like corporate greed and like trying to just milk. You know, because they said Coachella, you walked in, they gave you a water bottle, and there was filling stations every twenty feet. Yeah, you know, they like it was done right. Um, they got you know, I'll probably more anyway. Not to get well, too no, much. I, yeah, and I, I don't know. I mean, I also think that well, isn't like Coachella is also like can you even get in without spending one hundred and fifty bucks or two hundred bucks to even? It, it's also like a sort of a different level of. It feels to me like Lollapalooza was always a little bit more like punters can come yeah you know coachella is really oh that's that's more yeah that's on the high end there's a there's a festival in pasadena next year with like it's headlined by morrissey and bauhaus and devo and pretty much every 80s band i love you know from echo and the bunny men to psych first to violent femmes like vips 800 bucks you know general admissions like 180 so i look at this going all right, that's 180. But I go 20 years ago, it was 180. I'm like, you know, it was it was absolutely nuts. But then they, yeah, they showed Lollapalooza where there was a hole in the fence and kids were piling in. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so you, I got, I guess we'll, I got to start with you. Dropped Inner City. Um, when I found out 
you were, you were part of that. Like I kind of the little kid in me because that was one of the like my opinion one of the original house tracks I grew up with. I loved electronic music since I first heard Kraftwerk, hmm. and you know this is a global like you can play that song right now in any nightclub in in the world, yeah. and you will get people packed the dance floor. If you don't know what it is, the song's called Good Life. Walk. How the hell did that happen? I guess talk. You know, was this a trial and error thing? How did you hook up with the with the, with that whole thing? So I came to Detroit from Boston. I had studied at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston, uh, and met up with a guy who was from Michigan, Dennis White, who we may talk about more later if you want. Won a Grammy a couple of years ago for a Depeche Mode remix, best remix of the year. Um, really one of the best creative talents I've ever met, which is why, you know, I called up my dad in 1988 and said, Hey, I'm quitting college and I'm moving to Detroit. <laughs> Every father's dream, right? Absolutely. And um, he's passed now, but I'm happy to say that I was able to tell him before he died Remember that guy, Dennis, I quit school and moved to Detroit for? He just won the, the Grammy. Right. So oh, that's like, great. Yeah. I'm a good train spotter. I mean, I see really far into the future. Um, but, yeah, so we had been doing um, a killer group in Boston. Reeves Gabrels, who went on to play with David Bowie for years. Tin Machine was our guitar player. Um, and so we had a group called Reasoning with Angels stupid for a second then that turned into charm farm which was the brand that became known um in michigan a little bit in the early 90s so charm farm was a legend in my high school because i went to high school with uh, steve zuccaro there you go right. so that was the the buzz in the hallways was always you know yeah and then when we we're going to the post bar and you know when we we're all 21 22 Absolutely. you know yeah so, yeah, so, I mean, so Dennis, we, we started doing this thing there, um, and then he was based, he's from Michigan, and it was kind of like I knew we'd kind of have, like, a sort of a setup out here, um, and so, yeah, so I took the big, you know, the big risk, bought an MG from a buddy for for 1500 bucks, got me all the way to the border of Ohio and Michigan before I blew a rod, because <laughs> I didn't know that little cars need oil from time to time. No, absolutely. I'm dealing with it now with my daughter's mini Cooper. Trust me. And I had Millie vanilli hair. Actually, I didn't have the braids yet. I take that back, but I did have like, I had slash hair with the leopard tights and all. I mean, I was, I was not exactly like Western Ohio on the interstate. <laughs> right. Standing on the side of the road with the thumb out with the, yeah. yeah. So and there's no, you know, cell phones or <clears throat> internet or anything. So anyway, they come and get me, bring me back to Detroit. I've been here ever since. Love Michigan. Um, but we we came here. We had a loft in Eastern Market and uh, Raya Pell and Gratiot. <clears throat> and you know, the great thing was when Dennis and I were in Boston, it was like Boston was a really, at that time especially, that was much more of a music town industry hub than detroit was right was it really 
you had Till Tuesday, you had the cars that were still okay. late 80s, right? So like yeah, yeah. bands were still kind of coming out of there. Uh Lemonheads, I think oh. some, you know, shit that I don't listen to, but that people like. <laughs> but you know, and it really had a scene there. So it was kind of like, you know, my boy Dennis is like, yeah, but you know, we go to Detroit and it's like we can live cheap in a loft, it's expensive here, and like so I was like. I didn't really, I didn't know what I was getting into, but I knew he was at Berkeley in a school of geniuses. He was at the top, right? So you're there. You're either like, you're either hanging your own shingle or you're finding somebody else who you're going to jump on the coattails of. Well, you told and me I, something when we were having beers where yeah. you, you it's, it's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. If you actually graduated from Berkeley, you were a failure. Yeah, Totally. Man, the I, ones that made it or the ones that dropped out before they were done. Josh Linkner, right? One of the biggest, yeah. you know, tech entrepreneurs in Michigan. You know, we worked together. And the first thing that like, you know, I mean, I, I'd been doing some humble work for him and I finally get brought in to like meet the boss. And I knew he went to Berkeley and you immediately, alma mater, man, you're talking about the pizza joint you used to eat at, where the hot girls were, you right, know, right. you just, that was our way of bonding. But it was like, once he found out that I dropped out, it was like we just whoop, got that much closer. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, be- because it's like, man, the I mean, it's the arts. It's like it's entrepreneurial at the baseline. So if you if you make it through four years and graduate, it might mean you're a great student and it might mean you're a really good musician. But it doesn't necessarily mean that this is the right industry for you. You know, because it's like. You should be there in that in that pressure cooker, finding the people, connecting, and, and getting out of there. Sure. But that was always, from the moment I got there, like that was always my intent. So I meet Dennis. It's the right thing. We've done stuff together. I was like, this guy has the ability. Not only he's a great talent, but he was a good dude. That was huge. I wouldn't have just quit school and moved across the country with like an asshole. So he was a good dude. And, you know, and he was also the ability to rally people to his cause. I mean, we got these bebop jazz players and there was a real like cultural thing in Berkeley. It was like, so our time in the eighties was like, you know, the guys like us were bleaching our hair and had holes in our jeans. And then you had like, you know, the jazz guys, the guys that were like with Siri, you know, and it was like, there was a real division. Dennis could get those snotty snobby killer musicians to come bomb around with us and play with us. So that was always kind of our thing. And even when that's we what I always, that's what I was told my daughter when she got into band, I said, at least play an instrument that you could maybe be in a ska band when you're in college. So that was, don't play the clarinet or something stupid. Yeah. <laughs> French know. horn is tricky. Yeah. Right. Right. But yeah, it was, you know, so we just, um, I saw that, uh, you know, he had that ability to kind of rally people together and that was a big part of it too. So we, we come out here, and, um, you know, we're in Eastern market in this loft and accidentally Derek may is our downstairs neighbor. Juan Atkins is our downstairs neighbor to the side. And so you don't know who those two are. They're, they're, they're literally the godfathers of Detroit techno. If you look up like the origination of techno music there, there are three of the, there are three of the, two of the three heads that are on the Mount Rushmore. And the third one was Kevin, Kevin Saunderson. Right. He moved in after us and you know, I mean, honestly, it's it's how it's, how, it's, how fate yeah. is that though? That is fate. I mean, if you if yeah. you think about it in retrospect, that you know, 
just the, the fact that you were, you know, just a happenstance that you happen to be the three godfathers of tech. You know what I mean? Anyway. Yeah, I don't really know what to make. There's there's so many like there's so many weird things like that, Bob, in my history of like, how could that lucky not really a religious guy. So that doesn't work. Not a Zodiac guy. That doesn't really I like I just don't know what to make of it. Sure. Right? It becomes this sort of thing where you're like, that's why as a, as a parent, I'm always like, man, I cannot my kids cannot rely on being as lucky as I was. You know, because it's impossible. But yes. So we we kind of move into this epicenter. We're playing this like, you know, we're loud, raucous. We were, I will say, I can do like the humble thing, but I will say like Charm Farm, we were pretty badass. Like we were kind of doing, you know, we said like if you put like Prince and Led Zeppelin in a room, what would they do? And then like Parliament Funkadelic got thrown in that room. And then Red Hot Chili Peppers got thrown in that room. David Bowie and David Sylvian were in that room. It was a real fucked up kind of mix of stuff. But, you know, what it really translated in, into was it was like we were just edgy punk rock enough that the early 90s punk rock press in Detroit always gave us a pass. We, if you would have asked us, we wanted to be like in excess. Right. Shameless. Chicks. And we we take good pictures and, at, you know, at that stage of our life, you know. Yeah. They were great, actually. And they, we were actually yeah. never really, we never like apologized for that. Um, but I'm always amazed at kind of how we sort of got a pass. But I do think it was also because we were just really good. Well, you were one of the first, if I'm not mistaken, you're you're the you know was the first that like brought in sampling almost into like a rock song because I don't I'm sure there was some beforehand, but like. If I remember correctly, you guys said like, you know, this, I mean, obviously ministry and stuff did it too, but you guys were one of the first, it was like a, like a nice poppy, happy, fun. You could play it today and people would go, wow, this is a great tune. Um, so but that was it. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, you're right. I mean, I think, all right. So, so I come out here fall of 88, New Year's Eve, 1989. We do a show at the premier center on Van Dyke gone. Now that was the old, like, Oh yeah, Sinatra place, right? You're from here. Gilbert Humperdinck every other weekend, pretty much. (laughs) Kid Rock opened for us. That's where I met Bob. That's where I met Mikey Clark. Wow, that'll be a sort of a hitch, sort of a hinge point for a lot of stories. But you know, but we we did that show in by 1990. Well, that's in '89. We find out in the spring of 89 that we're going to do this inner city tour because Kevin back to your original thing about good life. Yeah. Kevin already had good life. It was a hit. So now he's in the loft next to us and Virgin records still owned by Branson at the time is like, okay, you're a band with a hit. You got to tour it. There's no dance music culture yet. There's no DJ culture. Nobody knows what to do with that. No, you're a band a band needs to tour to promote the record. So we're a band. Kevin, I don't think had any sense. And I have a Led Zeppelin, Jimmy page story that I can tell you, which may be of interest. Um, some years later with Kevin, but you know, we're upstairs playing like loud guitar music Zeppelin, but with like big break beats and shit. And 
he was like, well, I need a band. Well, you guys don't sound terrible. Will you be my band? So how that came back to Detroit was we're still doing Charm Farm. Now, Dennis and I are become, you know, we're inner city. Dennis was a music director in the beginning of that. I took over the role later when he and I were like not talking for a while. But we go over to Europe and dance music and guitars were already merging, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole kind of Depeche Mode, well, well, Depeche Mode, but even more so like uh, New Order, what they were doing, which turned into Happy Mondays and that whole Manchester scene. Then groups like Jesus Jones, EMF, right? Kind of one-hit wonders in America, right. a little bit more over overseas. But yeah, they but were doing those are songs like, you can again. Those are songs that are still alive today. You can play EMF they, tomorrow. Yep, they were doing like rock music with big break beats. Yep, and also shamelessly poppy too, right? But there was I think a, an information society kind maybe started that they were early. We got the gig at the Premier Center from the manager of Information Society. Oh, okay, go figure. Go That's figure. No, we got that gig. Yeah, um, and we were actually supposed to do a gig with them. And I think the singer got sick or there's some, some shit went down. Um, but yeah, I mean, information society. I mean, in fact, I just heard that uh, pure energy song. Yeah. Was, you know, I was like, damn, that was all right. Yeah. But yeah. So, so we were kind of, that's sort of where we were. So we were coming from like, you know, growing up in the new wave thing, guitar music too. But, you know, I think I'll speak for me. I grew up in Florida, like, Thank God I sat, I was in a Catholic school with one black kid in my entire class. Thank God I sat next to him in a class because he turned me on to Prince. I didn't grow up in Michigan where you'd have electrifying mojo, like spreading the gospel. Oh yeah. Orlando, Florida in the eighties was pretty much a cultural desert in many well, ways. I got shoe boxes still full of mojo cassettes that I used to, yes. I used to set lucky. my alarm for like midnight when I was, you know, 11 to tape. Yeah. And he, no, you guys were lucky. So me, I was like, you know, I did discover, you know, I'm the youngest in the family. So like older siblings had passed down some Bowie and Stones and Prince or not Prince Stones, Bowie, uh, Beatles, Doors, that stuff. Um, and I kind of and then when I, you know, like I said, I got introduced to Prince. It was like controversy era and it just blew my mind And at th- that age, like all the sexy bits and just he plays all the instruments. It just. It was so like, it was just so incredible. Um, so I got on that really early on and that was really then opened the door to like, you know, you were into Prince then you've got, Oh, who's Sly in the family stone. Who's James Brown. And again, I expect people from, from Michigan, it was easier for you guys, but a lot of parts of the country, like it, if you're a white kid in the suburbs, ah, right. So, so I'm teaching, what I'm teaching my daughter now is, you know, I'm a huge Daft Punk fan. I love them. Yeah. And I love the way they, hear things that i could never hear to put together what they put together so i grabbed for her like 15 songs i put a spotify list together of all the stuff that got sampled from them and i said listen to that stuff that's the old funk from the 70s that where they this group heard this and kind of made it theirs but and then now she's into this whole like they're listening to like going way back all this like where the origination came from and yeah i love it love that's awesome i love that that's awesome yeah so, yeah, so, that, I mean, so we kind <clears> of, <throat> that's sort of where, <clears throat> you know, that had a big influence. And even, you know, one of the things I think is important as, 
we're a good band that had some good songs. But I also think a big thing that Charm Farm did was we made events that we happened to be a part of. So we would make events that were awesome. We're going to headline them because we're doing the event. But you could go out to the event, not know who we are, not even care. We would do epically short sets. I always think of Purple Rain where Prince comes out, plays two songs, and then drops the mic. And the timer like, what's this two-song shit? You know, like (laughs) we would just come out and we were always like, and I'm still of this mindset of like, be a genius and then edit it in half. Like whatever you do that's great, do that. And then you always benefit from cutting that in half. Make them want more. Sure. So that was always our thing. We're, We're not, like, well, if you don't, we don't like this. Cut, we don't have to cut this podcast in half, do we? I'm just. Well, that's up to Randy, I think. Right? <laughs> totally is. Yeah. I may need him to cut it more than that. You and I will talk offline. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but, but, you know, we would, yeah, we would like, we figured that, okay, you come, you come out to the event. There's going to be DJs. You know, we, we made sure that it was a crowd that you wanted to be in at the time. That's a complicated thing, but there was a lot of, I mean, a lot of things that we just, we worked our way into kind of the connections of the scene to kind of be able to assemble meaningful events. Right. Well, no, it it makes with the crowd thing. It goes back to the Woodstock 99 thing. They had Jewel and Cheryl Crow playing like in between every heavy metal band, Megadeth known to man. Yeah. And like, people are just like, all right, this is the time to go get food or try to go get a water. Well, yeah. When crowd I mean, was, that, our crowd was dead. Yeah, no, that, but that was always our thing too, is like you come out to the event and if you, you don't like Charm Farm, go take a piss, go get sure. a drink. We're done by the time you get back. Sure. And if, you, and if it's amazing, if you think it's great, well, then you're going to come to the next one. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of always sort of our, our thing. And, but that was always, that was actually quite, especially in a local music scene where it tends to be, self-indulgent you know spinal tap the bass player wrote this you know we're gonna play for like you know we're gonna outstay our welcome because we're artists and you know we we were just not like and then the other thing is we threw so did you eat the so did you eat the brown m&ms then is that what you're saying i don't know we wouldn't eat the brown m&ms no do you know what that story is oh the van halen story yeah yeah that was van halen's writer yeah no well, I have a rider. I have an inner city rider story. There's actually that's actually on video. I can share with you at some point. Um, yeah, I mean we, but, but we were we were really like, you know, we'll do the show, and then we're also going to have an amazing after party back at the loft, and that was a big part of it too. So sure. we just kind of, I think we sort of got the whole experience and and sort of did that. It was super great and really kind of set us up for the next thing. So then Kevin is our neighbor. He's borrowing like eggs and cheese from us. I remember the first, you know, the first time after he moved in, it was talking about, yeah, the guy next downstairs from us, he's got like a top 10 record in the UK. Really? It's like house music. And I was like, ew. Now I'd been to a house music club one time. Right. There's a, and there's a life lesson here. So I'm, I'm living in Boston. I'm at Berkeley college of music, which is snobby music conservatory it wasn't conser- like classical music but it was still like it's all the olympics of like how fast can you play sure They're, you know very snobby and i will say that was never my thing i i you know i was i've always been open to like new ideas that's like sort of cornerstone to me is like wanting to learn new stuff if i don't get something I'm, i don't want to hate it right off the bat i'll just shut up and listen 
kind of thing. So, but I remember going with a, my best mate at the time and my girlfriend. We drove down to New York City. We went to a club in the Bowery called The World. And this would have been in probably the beginning of 1988, maybe okay. late 87 even. And it was the first time I heard house music. At that point, it was a drum machine and some out-of-tune vocals over like just like a slap bass sound played uh-huh. with one finger. And I was like, and my, and I'm standing there with my like $20 drink in 1988 in a plastic cup. And this, you know, we didn't get any like VIP love getting into the world. We were like last, you know, sitting there and going like, if I ever play this music, this goddamn music from hell, this is the worst <laughs> shit. This is. And literally, man, within a year, I'm touring with the biggest band that ever made that kind of music. Right. And that really, like, also, too, like, I always reflect on that. I'm like, man, if I don't get something, your new country music that you're really into, my inclination to be like, that's some. All right. You're into it. Let me let me listen to that. And, you know, but that was kind of so I, you know, get out here to Detroit, find out that our neighbors like this big house music guy and i'm like okay whatever heard good life dennis brought like a cassette tape i don't even think it it, you know well no that had been out already like but no actually you know what sorry big fun had been a hit already good life was just coming out that's why i just heard good life i I gotta tell this story where i first heard good life i'll never forget it it was on i worked at merry-go-round and djs at lakeside and oakland mall nice and it was on the training video And we're like they like the the people walking down, and for some reason, vividly in my head, I can remember that moment like it was last week. I can't remember what ate, you know, this the cliche. I can't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday, but that and that song, and like that that was the start of kind of my career in like keeping a notebook and like going to record time and singing, "Hey, I heard this song, you know what what the hell is it? Now it's Shazam. You can you know, but that yeah, was right. I used to write it on the notebook. Yep. And then I'd take it, you know, to, but that was the, one of the first tracks I ever remember, like trying to go, I had to go find this track. Yeah, no, there, there were, there were, there were special records, it's, you know, it's, it's big fun is out. It's already a hit. I get it. I, they play, play me good life. Dennis comes up with this tape. And for me, from my sort of pop sensibility, um, I mean, I can also connect this to my relationship with Trent Reznor. And the first time I heard his demos, of head like a hole and terrible eye did not like industrial music at all. We'll circle back to that. Okay, how that all right. to me. But my thing was that I, I, I don't like house music. I don't like techno or whatever that was. I hear good life and it just hit me at the level of like, it's a pop tune, right? With a good arrangement, good sounds, soulful vocal. It's so it was like undeniable. So I was like, Oh, this is house music too. Because my memory was like this terrible vocal out of tune over a bass line in a, in a really rudimentary drum part. And that was kind of like put together and mixed and sophisticated enough that like, so I heard that and then I'm like, ooh, wow. One thing leads to another. Uh, he's got a tour. Kevin's got a tour to promote this record. We get hired on as the band. Not everybody in Charm Farm gets it because we don't need a guitar. So Steve wasn't a part of that. Right. But um, we end up going up north to Gaylord, Michigan to rehearse for the first international techno music 
tour in a pole barn on a lake in Gaylord <laughs> with like deer coming up to us as we're playing, like hitting like, you know, Simmons drums and, and, and in the middle of a bar, it was the most surreal, weird experience. By the way, all of it's on video. And that's unusual then because video meant you had like a camera on your shoulder. And, right, right. But like there's, I mean, it's interesting because it was all, we documented all of it. Um, but yeah, and that was kind of, you know, and then then we were sort of off and, and you know, I mean, honestly, like that whole travel experience, I mean, I met my wife through those tours. Right. Um, I mean, I learned it, it, it ended up building the foundation for getting into, you know, the business I have now, all that's, I mean, directly tied to just kind of that crazy, weird stars aligning experience that we got to do that. Um, I can't imagine uh, it, like all we think about when you think about touring is the, the movie Rockstar with Mark Wahlberg. Right. And you wake up in the morning and there's 50 people, you're like half naked on the floor and you're figuring out what the hell happened last night. Then you got to like, basically chew down a couple of Tylenol and take a swig of champagne. And then you're going to do it all again the next night, you know, is uh, how much of that's true in fabrication. I mean, obviously it's a techno band. It's a little different, but then Motley Crue, but you know, well, so I don't know that it was different in 1989 and 90 in the UK. Right. Okay. I, I, I don't think it was different. What I will say to you is that one thing that was, really pretty amazing and fortunate. And I actually used Kevin Saunderson as kind of an inspiration or a, a kind of a, like I, I saw how his life was kind of working and it was a real inspiration to me. So, you know, Kevin's a legit, he's a rock star in Europe. Straight mm -hmm. up. Right. That first tour over there, we played the first gigs we ever did were sold two sold out shows at the town and country club in London. And then we proceeded to play. I think the first tour in the UK was a, like a two-week tour. We went, you know, Manchester and Liverpool and Bristol and kind of went all, all over the, the, the country. And that was, in some ways, like it never got bigger than that. I mean, it was the, it was the private catering uh, tour buses we had for many years. And that was the dream. Is a, There's some dreams when you achieve them, they're not what you expected and, and right. a little disappointing. The tour bus is exactly what I hoped it would be as a kid. And that's honestly like, if I had to say like the one thing about like, you got to like have this brush with whatever for a period of time. Yeah. The tour buses, man. Like that was just, that was the best. Um, so we had, we kind of had that whole experience on that, that first tour there. Um, you know, going from the venue to the tour bus and people trying like, they could get your hat off your head. They were just trying to take anything they could off of you. Really? Yeah. And I mean, this is stuff that like, I mean, other experiences like talking to Mikey Clark about being around Kid Rock at the height of his success and just sure. scariness of fame when people are just like, you're no longer a human being. You're just like a thing that like has value if I can touch well, you or photograph you or steal something from you. There was a... Really uh, when this might have been 010299, I don't remember exactly what year, but I just remember that when Eminem bought that house and on, on like a main road in Clinton Township, like on Hayes and like 18, mm -hmm. you drive by and you're like, that's Eminem's house. You're like, what do you mean that's Eminem's house? 
like, yeah, people camp out there. He needs to hire security. I'm like, I, you know, that's when he moved to God, whenever. But like, yeah. people would say, like, I saw him and I'm at Costco. We're like, what do you mean you saw him and I'm at Costco? Like, he was trying to be a normal human being. And I think the fame took him over or took well, it over. Well, I will say, like, locally in Detroit, Bob could hang. Like, Bob, I mean, I've had drinks with Bob at, at the WAB. Yeah. Like, this is after he was like super famous, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. When he was doing a thing at the Bears Den. He would show up for, um, uh, Howling Diablos. Okay. The period of time. Bears Den's gone now, but um, in Oak Park, right? And yeah, he always came to the post bar. He, would, like, he could come know. and hang, and he would. He could totally do that. I mean, Eminem couldn't do that. If I'm Eminem, the moment it was found out he was anywhere, the, the roads would be shut down like it's Michael Jackson. Yeah. And that's when you realize, like, Bob Ritchie's famous and a rock star. Eminem is at a level that is really like Elvis. It, 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 yeah, it's like Elvis, Michael Jackson level shit. Right. Like he has to kind of be this Howard Hughes guy because he can't. And it's, you know, I mean, I, you know, a good friend of mine is uh, John Quig. Quigley Quig is, you know, he's a video guy. Shot a lot of Eminem's video stuff during like his heyday and stuff. Mm. And, you know, and he would talk about just how, you know, Marshall just can't. He's really just, he has to leave a place, get in a car with tinted windows, be taken to some other place where he has to be snuck in the back all the time. Right. All the time. So, so yeah, that's, that's another level of stuff. Well, you know, it's like guys like me wish they could be them and guys like them wish they could have just a normal chill. You know, I remember a, a pro wrestler friend of mine, like just, just got back from the Tokyo dome, walked down and there was one of the main events in front of 50,000 people. And he's, he's sending me notes from the hotel room going, you know, I, I just want to come home and be married and have kids and have like a nine to five. I'm like, dude, you just walked Tokyo Dome. I would kill to be in your shoes. You know. So here's the thing with Kevin. Back to that, then. That's a great yeah. segue back to that. He he was able to do that. He'd fly to Europe. He'd fly to Asia. Yeah. Be rock star guy. Fly back to Detroit. No one knows or gives a fly. I can swear on this thing, right? Sure. Flying. That's sure. Is, right. <laughs> like, um, and it was and he. Raise a family. He was living in, was it, uh, White Lake? Oh God! Yeah, I had a house in White Lake, and I'm like, you know, I remember it was the thing. Is like, you know, that was kind of used to be clan territory like yeah. long ago. <laughs> Morning, Kevin. Morning, Bill. Give, and then Kevin didn't give. He's like, I don't care. I nice neighborhood, nice house. He's yeah. just like right on. Um, but you know, it was the kind of thing where like. And that's what I always admired. Like he could have a normal, he could go be a rock star, party, do wild out, come home, normal shit. And I think a lot of these Detroit DJs have that. And that's a really not a common thing. So, you know, I just coattailed a little sliver of that, but got to experience a little bit of like that sort of thing. So is that's why I think it's it's interesting because the stories that I have for being a guy who's just I'm an office worker now, really, right? Right. But it's like a little bit of insight into that that thing. And yeah, I mean, that first tour in the UK and the first tour we did in Japan, like a band with like like top 10 pop records and kind of how people react to that. I mean, so here's another one I'll tell you. So our first trip to the UK. So this is, we're also around the Milli Vanilli time. Oh God. Okay. Uh where the industry hasn't gotten used to the fact that like JLo is not going to sing all the parts because she's dancing and she's JLo. 
Yeah. And you're there for the show. This is not a bebop. This is not Miles Davis we're going to see. This is a... So it's like, what's the aesthetic? So I'm all for like, if you're Miles Davis or you're some jazzer and you're like, it's a, it's a tape, I'm pissed off. But if it's like a boy band and I just, they're dancing, I don't really care what's live. Like, right. come on. Here's, well, yeah. at this point with, with electronic music, there's no established, you know, they were kind of filtering us through the aesthetic lexicon of like R&B groups who all played live and were all real badass musicians or whatever. Mm. So, you know, I mean, Kevin's a producer. Okay. Now Kevin's, he's a great producer and I would never, I mean, there, there's, he's absolutely brilliant. He's a genius, but it, it, but he wasn't always like, I mean, at that point he's not like playing the parts on the keyboard. Right. We got over there to, to England and it was like, we had press people, pulling into pu- pulling members of us aside trying to get dirt on the way this music was made wow okay so we'd have, well some, we'd have a guy well take me dirt. out take me out for drinks try to get me sauced up so i'd tell shit take dennis out for drinks you know so i mean kevin's in this video he's playing the guitar is he really playing and look we weren't going to be like well you know i mean but it was really a thing where it was almost like you know you're in a court and they're trying to like get testimonies and, and call you out. But that was a big deal then because it was like, you know, God forbid, you know, now Kevin will be like, he doesn't have to prove anything. He's like, I make all these records. However I make them, you know, yeah, you know how he makes them. And there's, and it, it, you know, it is, there's no question that, you know, he's a, a rare talent, but at that point he's a new artist. There's still this precedent of like, well, you know, there's a lot of producers who like, you know, they're ringleaders of stuff, right? I mean, did George Clinton play anything on anything? I don't. Does, I don't think so. But if George Clinton wasn't in the room, would any of that music been made? Nope. No. So, so there was this interesting thing in this time period of like, you know, what? And even when we approached how to even play this music live, because another thing where it was like, you know. The first inner city tour was a hundred percent live, no backing tracks. So we took computerized music and played it entirely live. Wow. Now I will tell you that was probably not the best ultimate aesthetic choice, but based on what the precedent was and what we knew and we could do it. I mean, John farming, the, the group of musicians, I mean, we, you know, we were, Berkeley people, you know, we were like, you know, we could, we could take it and do it. And so, you know, I think well, it Kevin becomes was, almost like a MTV unplugged kind of sound. No, or, or how was it? Was it pretty accurate? And there's videos on YouTube you can find too. Yeah. No, it, it was, um, no, it, it wasn't unplugged. It was, we had a killer drummer, Dave Schomer, um, who, you know, played all the, you know, he was able to basically like replicate a four on the floor house beat. Okay. Be like, I mean, which is not, is not easy. Um, but we were also like, <laughs> and the, there's video, so I'm not, I'm not giving away anything. You, everybody can find it, but you know, we would do like, we'd be doing like true to the form of like, you know, good life, for example. Right. Then we go to into an extended thing 
And then, you know, Dennis and I were really into James Brown and Prince. So we would be like, we're going to go into a jam and then we're going to have Kevin go, you know, everybody stop on the one. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> right. Which like that is no business in <laughs> really has no business in the, in this kind of music. Right. But, but maybe it does. I mean, we just, we were doing, that was you're doing what you know at the time. And then, you know, subsequent tours, you know, so, so Dennis was a music director and then he and I went our separate ways. Then I sort of took over the helm and then I kind of moved through and also technology was evolving too. So that's a big part of the evolution of this music, which makes it, I think particularly interesting because I don't think every era of music is so driven by technology. Right. So we did tours with ADATs, like literally multi-track tape machines that okay. they would break and we'd not have an adapter in Spain to connect to the ADAT machine. 10 minutes before the show, the guy would show up with the adapter we need and all kinds of crazy to eventually getting to the point where it's like, you know, now we do shows, it's all on your laptop. You know, literally laptops got the whole show backing mm -hmm. tracks of that. And then you're, you're doing stuff over it. But we kind of, you know, evolved the whole experience over, you know, how much of it should be live, how much of it should we be backing. There was a big thing in like the mid nineties to late nineties where, I mean, I remember, you know, having conversations, not in America somewhere, I think Netherlands, Carl Craig was there for, for an event talking with him. And, you know, at the time he was putting like all this gear on stage and he was still like, and he, I love Carl and he's a real, like, he's a, just an organic purist about what he does. Uh, just a, a real pure artist, but it, you know, it was really important to him that like all the sounds were coming from like live instruments that were sequenced. So you're going to have a sequencer that's going to be MIDI to like 20 other boxes on stage to make the sound that people hear. Um, I respect that, but I also know from all the shows that I've done, why introduce more bugs, potential breakpoints to the system when the audience is going to be they're going to be on their own shit <laughs> they're maybe uh, be watching you and really what they want is not shit to stop midway through the show because something got unplugged or something has to be rebooted and so eventually it became like i don't know you know if you got a big spectacle of a show and the DJ's having a pizza delivered to him on stage, which I'm not, <laughs> I'm not really, that's not my scene either. Right. But, but there is that maybe a happy medium between like, does it really matter that everything that people are hearing someone is playing? And I sort of ended up falling back to like, well, if what's being played should, it requires some dexterity, some skill in terms of like, I want to see somebody perform this. If it's going pop, 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 yeah. pop, pop, over and over again, you can watch me do that. And and it's sort of the punk it's rock. not going to change it. In the Have punk you ever rock seen of like, hey, I could be, I, I get that, right? It could yeah. be like three chords. Hey, I could be that guy. I was right. always a little more of an elitist from the Berkeley thing of like, I don't want to just be that guy. I want to, I want to see that guy being like, damn, how's that guy do that? Right. And have you so, ever seen the uh have you ever, not to cut you have you ever seen the youtube video of the dj 
that's it's electronic and he's got three big screens all of a sudden you hear doon 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 and it goes to windows 10 uh or whatever and like all of a sudden the crowd just starts like booing well then all of a sudden it's like doon 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 and it, it like it's booting back up and then he incorporates that he like it was all pre-planned and then he, the next song is like whatever if he made the song or whatever but it's like mixing the windows songs into like the next techno track and the crowd goes nuts because nice. Because they knew that it wasn't a, they because they thought everything crashed and shit the bed. Turns out, you know, it was all pre-planned, but it was a like a good cool down moment. It was great. No, that's that's super good. Well, and I, I also, I always love clever. Like it's always like, you know, clever or genius. I tend to go with clever. Mm. Like clever is typically more fun. It's a more guarantee of fun. Like the genius first guy that did the. Fun, but clever is typically more of a sure thing. oh yeah like the first guy that did the empire uh the darth vader march on uh was scratching if you're on the scratch battle it's like a 15 year old video but he was like the song and he's stopping it's like nah, 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 and he's got the other record nah, 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 awesome. and the crowd goes great you know That's but back awesome. then that was the you know revolutionary so anyway yeah. um we could probably you know talk for three years on music stories but i gotta dive into tech because it's sure. you know, supposed to be a tech show but that's great you know, i love music too so you know yeah it, it falls into but like i guess i'll start with the nft game yeah so when i heard it it was uh i don't want to say i got the little smells like uh you know smells like shit or whatever but let's see if this works but then you're telling me you can't get a project done because you gotta get it and do an nft and i'm like all right we gotta talk about this um so i guess what have you done so far and i guess where do you see is the market picking up is it already dead or where do you see this thing taking off so i i'm a i'm a i'm a big evangelist for blockchain generally um i think it is the most exciting disruptive thing you know we're old enough. Well, I'll speak for myself. I'm old enough to have seen enough of these sort of phases of real disruption in technology mm. come along. And I think that, you know, blockchain is, is as cornerstone as internet or as the PC. Um, well, then someone just chipped a quantum computer. Was it two weeks ago, Randy? And to in my opinion, they said this is the greatest breakthrough since the PC. So now with the ad with blockchain and, quantum computing on a chip like yeah this thing it's going to get nuts in the next few years well i don't think so there's a um andreas antonopoulos he's a i can shoot you a link there's a he does a he does a a video talking about the encryption for blockchain for for block uh bitcoin private keys and um sort of disarms the threat of quantum but the other thing with quantum is that, um, and I don't know, I'm not sure what you're referring to in terms of delivering a, a quantum computer. I think th that's going to be an arms race. There's no, here's the thing. If, if quantum is going to threat, be a threat to Bitcoin, it's a bigger threat. No, I don't threat. think so. I think it's, it's going to speed it up. It's a bigger threat to everybody, to banking. And yeah. Everything. No, I so, think it's going to speed it up. So, yeah, so I think that, that, that it will evolve to, to keep up with that. Um, yes. Yeah, so, what was your question with the quantum thing? 
We're going at no, we're going NFT. I was just talking about oh, that, you know. yeah, yeah. So um so I think so I'm a big advocate for the for the space generally. The NFT thing pulled my attention in a big way. We put together basically we did a startup company for this. Um we cooled our jets for the minute. The reason for that was it became this thing where so one of the things that I've always kind of been uniquely positioned uniquely, but I've always had sort of a, an advantage in that, you know, I'm a real relationships guy. I have tentacles and lots of really weird disjointed lanes. Right. Um, and so for something like this, I was immediately like, okay, the relationship between being able to serialize for uniqueness digital art and the foundation of my peoples is, you know, arts and entertainment people who have made the transition from, you know, records and CDs and movies and video into digital. And for the most part, the promise of it has ended up being pretty limiting. Right. So like, it's not like, I mean, I guess it like, you know, those damn record companies, you miss them now, don't you? Right? Like there's a, there's an element of like, sure, you can go on YouTube, get yourself a million followers, and then maybe a company will give you a record deal for, for a single. I mean, Justin Bieber had to prove himself with three or four singles before he got an album. Like they sure. wouldn't even do it with him, right? And a Prince or a Bruce Springsteen or a Bob Dylan, or you go down the list, would never have a career because... <clears throat> You know, they Prince didn't have a hit until his fourth record, Springsteen, about that far along. You know, Billy Joel, David Bowie, go down the list of people where it was like, you know, they really had to be developed. Sure. And the record label enabled them to like quit their job slinging eggs to go be an artist. Where now it's like, oh, you're expected to like sling your eggs, learn how to be a great artist, learn how to be a great marketing person, learn how to be like, and now some people will do that. You can say, well, toughen up. That's the way it is. But I think there's a lot of artists that have just, you know, the, the, it's narrowed down the promise of kind of everything's going to be digital and it's open to everyone. I think it's been a, not quite what we expected. Okay. All that being said, and I say this from the standpoint of like, um, I know plenty of stars that make shit tons of money still. And there's still plenty of people we know that are talented that work for beer. Everybody starts off working for beer. But the middle class is really shrunk, maybe in maybe in everything, but certainly in the entertainment business, business and music. And I think that the NFT felt to me like an opportunity to re-inject value into digital work. So it wouldn't be the golden bullet, but it might be a new lane for artists to be able to get paid for, for the work that they do in a, in a way that can't really be controlled by big companies by big digital media platforms. Okay. So I get Dennis in Dennis white, all excited about it. Get Kevin Saunderson involved. I got, you know, a long list of people that were all kind of signed on for it. <clears throat> um, there was always a part of it though, to me, that was distasteful. We're in a pandemic. You're selling your fart for a hundred thousand dollars. You're selling a tweet for $2 million. All y'all. 
right? And and I also know how, like, you know, we were ready to go. I mean, I had I had budgets for PR people. We were kind of had it together. We had a string of like, and I'm not going to talk about what the projects were. I would love to, but we're yeah, still probably do them, right? But we had kind of a lineup of like releases of what we were going to do and why and how we we're going to put them together. And it was just saying, we got to rush. We got to be the first. We got to get cranes to do a thing that Loud Baby is the first, you know, NFT company in Michigan. The week that I was ready to go with this, but I was still having these kind of feelings about like, but I, the technology, yes. The mission, yes. But if I really roll this out, I mean, I did a Facebook announcement about it. She, you know, among my friends saw it, but right. we didn't really go beyond that. So it's easy to walk it back for a minute. But I thought if I really throw this out there and I'm glad we didn't Bob, because it was two weeks later when it was like, NFTs are a freaking joke. Everybody's moved on. But it was like the day after I, I, I woke up and was like, I was ready to go with the press release or not the, a couple days after it was like Jack white did one. Then Eminem dropped one. Then it became like, all right, well, if it's not now my Michigan play is done. So is it a joke or isn't it? Yeah. It's not a joke, but it's going to be the kind of thing where like a lot of this stuff, like Jeff Bezos is e-commerce Amazon. I mean, I did a web store probably before he did. Right. Too early. The first business my wife and I started was an Indonesian import gallery in Birmingham. Okay. Which if we had opened it five years ago, we'd probably be killing it. We opened it. It was, well, I'll tell you what, it was before the Bali bombing. So Bali bombing put Indonesia on the map for most Michiganders. Not right. in a good way, but it put it on the map. So we're selling shit that was dope. That if we were in San Francisco or New York, people have been like, would have understood how dope it was. But we were like too ahead of the game. So another lesson I learned was like, and even, you know, even the thing with like, even the Detroit techno stuff. Now I'm, I got no complaints. I, I had a great ride with it, but like those guys, you know, the next wave of electronic music people, EDM people, they're the people that got $50 million. Like none of the Detroit guys were too early. Too well, early. They, yeah. You had to get a residency residency in Vegas to make any money now. That's with, right. You know. That's right. Absolutely. So, so it, it just sort of became this thing where, you know, I was like, well, <clears throat> I could. I just want to sit on this for a minute and wait till it settles down to a point where now it's not just like me too hype. We'll roll it out. Yeah. For the for the same reasons that got me excited about doing it in the first place, and with the same concepts. I mean, we've got concepts that relate to the Detroit techno scene for this that are incredible. We got concepts relating to like, you know, photographers that are like iconic photographers and. People that I mean lots of really and you know relationships of people that that really would be some incredible stuff, but it just I, I had to cool cool our jets on it for the minute with that. Um, I don't know if the pandemic did anything though. It, it absolutely skyrocketed the collectibles market, baseball cards, <clears throat> Star Wars. You know, because what what else are you gonna do now? Now I'm you know. I just looked at a stupid Macho Man Slim Jim figure. I bought it for like fifty bucks. It's worth like they're selling it for two hundred two fifty now on eBay. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, so like that market's just absolutely exploded. 
I, I kind of I don't want to belittle NFT because I understand it, but I, I kind of put it in that you know collectibles. I gotta have it. It's unique, you know. It's a, well, that's a, no, that's entirely what it is, and and honestly, you know, the investment component of it, and again, being like a big sort of. Have you read the Bitcoin Standard? That's a book the, that the book no everybody should read. I mean, it's not even three quarters of the book doesn't even talk about Bitcoin. It talks about what is money, what is it. I'm a musician, man. Like I don't study economics, right? Like it's when you actually start to look at like what it is, where should you be putting your money? Why is, is real estate a good investment? Why, why is it right? What's inflation is inflation. Like how much is your Netflix going up or your gas or your loaf of bread or how much does it cost to put your kid in college, buy health insurance, buy a house, stuff that really matters to you know, well, those things with collectibles, it's hinged on what is hard, what is finite. If I if I have an autographed, you know, copy of, you know, the Great Malenko by Joe and Joey, I might or I might not have that. But if I have that, well, that's that's valuable, right? I mean, that's there's only so many of them, right? So let me ask you a question, the million dollar, not the million dollar question, but the, the, the question that just been since this whole thing started, mm. I understand a, a, a painting and then that painting is, let's say it's 10 grand. Yeah. And then, so you make posters that are $20. Yeah. That makes sense to me because the mm -hmm. painting's unique. Mm -hmm. The poster, you, you know, you know, the difference Yeah. with digital, how do you differentiate that? Does that make sense? Right. It does. So, and it took, that was the thing to sort of get my head around with the whole thing. But what it, what it comes down to is that you really are buying the serial number. Right. So, so yes, if it's like, so my first thing with NFTs, I'm like, Oh, well, so does the JPEG have some code embedded in the, in the, in the, that no, no, it doesn't. It's mm -hmm. you buying. A, I'm telling you, Bob, that you're going to buy, this digital thing I made in Photoshop because you think if it was made by me, it's going to be worth something one day. The fact that you got the, the original from the artist and I'm, and you're going to be able to prove that because the artist is also signed off for the fact that this is the serial number on the blockchain for this piece that I did. And you bought it. You could, you could take that and you could, duplicate it, throw it up on Reddit where people could save it. There's no, I mean, it's digital, so you can sure. copy it. What I say to that though is, and this is a, you know, it's kind of like, and I, I got in this debate actually with Dennis, you know, Dennis is an art collector, Dennis White. He was like talking about like, I said, all right, so Dennis, you like Andy Warhol paintings. Look, I mean, literally somebody in their, their companies and people that do this, you know, could make a copy of a painted copy, not just a, like a, a was it Gilkey? Is that the term? Gilchi, Gilkey, you know, the fancy printout of an artwork. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. But you'd have somebody who actually is going to paint the Campbell soup cans using the same type of paint that Warhol, he didn't do it, but his people did, right? The same kind of, you know, the weight and the, it, you, and actually literally make it so it's, you know, down to a forensic level the same. You're going to hang it on your wall. If you come in my house and you like Andy Warhol and you see that hanging over my fireplace, you're like, you won't say anything. Oh, that's cool. Well, that's the original, Bob. Is it cooler? 
No, there's no difference. Well, the only no, no. difference is that I get to say it was the original. So in the digital space, it's the same thing as I say, like, okay, I've got this, you know, cyberpunks, you know, bitmap thing, you know, hanging on my wall. But I'm gonna say, but that's the original one, and it's got the, you know, it's got the code on the bottom. So it's it is weird. I do think that I think I think it's going to take a while before it, it, it it's going to be generational because you know you're a gamer and involved in games. I mean, there is that thing. I mean, my kids they don't want what do they want for Christmas? I'll get you. I'll buy you something. Can I have like Robux so I can buy a T-shirt for my avatar? <laughs> and and listen, I mean, I don't know if you know the story. I mean, my wife and I we built the first city of Detroit in Second Life, which was the first metaverse. And we were, we were, I mean, that's a whole, we can get into that if you feel like it, but we, we were like, that was a big leap actually for loud baby was when we started fucking around with, with building in the virtual world. But that was really where like, you know, you started to realize like the value of fake shit doesn't matter. Like, well, you could sell, I know like I was a big Diablo two guy and to get certain gems, people would pay a thousand dollars for because yeah. it, because they knew it took you you know 18 months of playing this game to obtain that gem weapon whatever you know so so i i definitely think nft stuff i think the digital art thing i think boomers will never get it most gen xers aren't going to get it millennials half of them will and most gen z will and beyond them i think it's going to be like it's just going to be like my money is my kids now like they actually like <laughs> my daughter like She's like 13. She's like, you know, money is gross. Like she had actually like, like touched some money. <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, and, and it's like. And not just pennies. You're talking like dollars. Yeah, it's just like, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, and I didn't get into the fact that it's like, yeah, there's like, it's been in how many ass pockets and cocaine on it and uh. all kind of, you know, you're like, <clears throat> just the concept of like, we're in a pan, these kids are growing up in the pandemic. So they're already like everything's gross. Right. Like, yeah, money's like really gross. Like why I can't just be like, here, let me send you, you know, okay, thanks. And and we move on. So I just think that, you know, I'm going to buy this, this rare thing and I'm going to buy it because I like it. And I'm also going to buy it because I think it's going to go up in value because you're the shit. Yeah. I just think that's, you know, so, so we just, we, we chilled on it for now because I was like, I just think, we'll get all into this and when you can so here's, when you can uh i don't want when you can wiener flash it i think that's when it's going to explode like i buy a ten thousand dollar painting i traipse people into my house and i say look you know what i mean i have this the baseball signed by babe roof i can show it look you know what i mean i, I think right now it's i think it's hard to to you know tout that you own one of these without like a press release well that, and the big thing is that you know the the presentation i mean i love what people did right so people you know way he was doing them and he kind of i mean we were gonna when when we end up doing we're gonna do it we're just gonna completely bite on the way he was doing it but basically you're selling the nft but you're selling it in a dope picture frame that it's got you know it's got the 
QR code and yeah, you know, the hologram of authenticity. And I mean, you you paid five hundred thousand dollars for the thing. It's the least we could do, right? Like, <laughs> right. You know, but it's but it is that thing where like, you know, you need to have it. So if I'm gonna buy like, you know, even those they're really popular. I mean, I don't I'm not a basketball guy, but the NBA's got those hot shots thing where you're buying plays, like you're just buying like some basketball, you know, winning winning shot. And then initially they're selling like the Michael Jordan winning shots, but now they've gotten down to like the third string guy on Tampa Bay's basketball team. Do they have a basketball team? Well, I know they got smart with the uh, like, like one of twenty four cards, like you know, like Zion Williamson patch card, one of twenty four. They come out, they immediately are brand new, worth three, four, five thousand dollars, just out of the box. I think it's it's a big thing is gonna be how that how you can display those things, right? Like so there'll be, you know, a market for like, you know, a hardware market for cool ways to display NFTs. You mm-hmm. know, I think that'll be that'll be a big thing. Um so I think it's I think it'll be I think the next feels to me like the it kind of tech evolution in the in the blockchain space kind of revolves around the Bitcoin having cycle in a way because it that influences kind of the price of Bitcoin and also the hype of the mainstream media and just people. And so then that in turn goes into, you know, startups that are going to get venture capital that people are going to be excited about it. I think the NFT thing, it's sort of like Ethereum got its start before the last having, right. You know, it was kind of, the new thing now it's right. really starting to be like okay it's it's big boy pants i think that NFT, guy's an alien by the way uh, he for sure yeah that yeah, guy's not from this earth yeah. if you've ever seen him speak or talk Metallic, or yeah or... no he's he's a, yeah he's... <laughs> um but yeah i think so i think i think we got a few years it's gonna take a little while i think you know there's another thing now these like social tokens we've seen about that now mm. it's kind of the next thing after nfts right so this is the idea that like not like what they're doing in China where you have to behave and like then you get to get into places. You're not talking about that, are you? No, I am glad they kicked the miners out though. That's good for the space. Oh yeah. They kicked all the Bitcoin miners out. That's really good. But <clears throat> no, social tokens are basically that um and this could apply to any business, any brand, any content creator to say, okay, so you're you know, the popular TikTok star of the moment and you can issue a crypto token that your fans can either buy or you can distribute to them and it becomes kind of an economy based around your popularity and people can buy and sell and and then redeem them so you could you could be like okay if you if you have a thousand of my token you know you can get backstage to see me when I appear or you can get discounts in my store and None of this is things that can't be done without blockchain and crypto, right? Chuck E. Cheese tokens. You, know, you go in, you pay for the tokens, you're putting the tokens in the machine. They're not redeemable for anything, so you're going to leave there. It's good for them because you leave there with tokens that you never f- spend. You still go through your piggy bank. I'm like, I still got goddamn Chuck E. Cheese tokens. Everybody does. You know, but it becomes this thing where it's an ecosystem of commerce, and on the blockchain, that's that's going to be huge. I mean, look for a Raul Paul video about that on YouTube about it. I mean, it's it's sick. I mean, this is like really, really disruptive stuff. 
But it hits me like texting hit me when that first came. It was like, that's fucking crazy. Why would I want to text? Well, text especially no, because you had to hit because you had to hit number two three times to get the letter C. <laughs> that's why he texted. Well, that's, that's true. You're right. You're right about that. Yeah. <laughs> Until he got my BlackBerry, I never texted anyone. Yeah. Um, hey, we, this is, uh, you know, if anyone's wondering, this is part one of like a 19 part series. Tommy, yeah. you could, we could talk to you for three weeks, um, but in the best interest, well, I got to cut you loose, man. Uh-huh. We can uh, we can find you uh, on Spotify, Charm Farm, Inner City. We can find you at loudbaby.com. Um, do you even have a LinkedIn profile? Uh, I don't think you do. I never look at it. I do. <laughs> I, I, do. I made one 10 years ago. We'll get yeah. you on Spotify. At least, at least you get a point oh oh one cents for a royalty check when they uh, when they buy a superstar. Uh, but no, I can't thank you enough for the time. I, honestly, I uh, I could I could listen to your stories for weeks. Uh, maybe we'll have you back in a, in a month or two. Uh, right I want to I want to dive more into the blockchain stuff. This is it's fascinating to me. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Tommy Onyx, uh, appreciate it. On behalf of uh, Bob and Randy, do us all a favor: drink up your drinks, get your phone numbers. You don't got to go home. You just got to get the hell out of here. See you next week. Drive careful. Beat it.